2: Dr. Orion Taraban is a clinical psychologist and the owner of the Psych Hacks YouTube channel. In this episode, we discuss the psychology of dating, the behavioral economics of dating, and how those two things make men and women have very different incentives and approaches to their dating lives. Thank you very much for being here, Orion. Wonderful to have you.
3: Very happy to be here, Charlie. Thanks.
2: So we were just talking about therapy, and you were talking about how men uh, go at a factor of, I think you said, three to one less often than women, and that's not because uh, women have three times
3: as many problems as them. Can you talk about that a bit? Certainly. I think that a lot of guys think about therapy and they say, uh, so you're saying that I will get to talk to somebody who will sit there like you are, look very concerned, say, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh, I see. And I'll just vent about my problems and then I'll pay you a couple hundred bucks and that's going to help. Like that makes absolutely no sense to most men. Mm -hmm. And the idea of the talking cure is actually it has a feminine origin this is something that a lot of people don't understand so it actually goes back to freud the father of psychoanalysis freud was a jewish psychiatrist in austria and because he was jewish the anti-semitism prevented him from really joining a lot of the professional organizations it was hard for him to get clients so he kind of could take whatever he could get which mostly meant that his patients were women. Oh. And Freud was really clever. He was very insightful. He also was something of a businessman. He was always looking for an angle. He was searching for his grand design. And so he was experimenting a lot with his therapeutic practices. One day he had a patient, we know her as Anna O., and he was doing his thing when Anna basically just interrupted him, said, listen, doctor, just shut up for a while and let me talk. (laughs) And Freud was like, okay, I haven't tried that. I've tried everything else. I might as well just see if this works. And he just shut up. She talked the whole hour. She said, oh my God, I feel so much better. And Freud was like, her neurosis has decreased. Hysteria down 20%. I mean, he thought it was amazing. And so he called it the talking cure that was inspired by Anna Oh. He started doing that with other people and he found that it had a potential to reduce neurotic symptomology, Mm -hmm. right? But I think it's important to understand that that was grounded in a feminine experience. And this Mm -hmm. is the the age-old argument that husbands and wives get into each other, the... The wife wants to talk. The husband says, okay, I'm listening. She starts to talk about her problems. He starts to offer solutions. She says, I just want you to listen. He says, well, how is that going to help? Of course I'm listening. That's Mm -hmm. why I'm trying to solve your problem. It's just, I just need you to listen. Ah, you know, that kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. So I think feminine problem solving is more focused on emotional coping and masculine problem solving is more focused on actually addressing the problem in an actionable way. Ideally, you do both, Mm -hmm. but I think that our normal associations with therapy is, still 120 years old which is the therapist is a screen he or she doesn't talk very much um, and you just vent and potentially arrive at some degree of insight and the insight is the master key to solve whatever difficulty you're dealing with yeah and I don't think that's true either
2: do you I want to table this depending on the direction that you go but do you think that that masculine feminine difference is Uh, primarily biological or cultural? I think it's
3: both. It's impossible to say it's one or the other. Okay. Uh, We have biological predispositions, Mm -hmm. but we are very much cultural organisms. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, most studies that have to do with personality consistently come down to where it's 50% nature, 50% nurture. Got it. We know that there are some cross-cultural universals with respect to the human experience, like emotions, for example. There's been uh, some very rigorous studies where they look at indigenous folks in the Amazon rainforest basin or Papua New Guinea with very limited contact with developed civilization. And we see the same kinds of emotions, the same type of emotional expressions uh, as we do in uh, the first world or the Mm -hmm. civilized world, as you want to put it. Um, But there are so many differences with respect to how men and women experience themselves and experience each other that are related to time and place.
2: Yeah. Okay. So for a combination of factors, men are not going to therapy as much. And you were saying that your approach tends towards, I believe that masculine style of Mm let's talk about solutions to this rather than just simply holding space for you to feel seen and heard, which again, has tremendous amounts of value.
3: That's right. And guys need that from time to time too. It's really important to have a a safe, non-judgmental space for everyone to say, I can get this off my chest. I need to speak this because in the act of speaking it, there's a catharsis. I can get it out. Mm -hmm. Some things sound a lot louder and bigger in our minds. And then when we We verbalize them, we can see them for what they are a bit more objectively. But yeah, I think men are more interested in actionable solutions and time-limited therapy Mm -hmm. and behavioral strategies. Yeah, We also know that about 85% of therapists are women. And just like we can imagine that there are certain things that women would feel more comfortable talking with other women about, well, I certainly know that there are things that men are more comfortable talking to other men about. Mm -hmm. And so there's just a, a lack of supply. The demand is there but there's not a lot of male therapists and not a lot of male therapists that specialize in men's mental health. Mm -hmm. I think there's like two in California.
2: Yeah, it seems like a lot of the demand, and to a degree, things like, you know, charisma on command is satisfying some of that demand, which is saying, I'm having these struggles inside of myself. I'm feeling like a lack of belonging. I'm feeling that I don't know how to get the things that I want. Here's an action-oriented solution to do this. And there is space, it seems like, I guess kind of what I'm interested in in the rest of my career is using that as a jumping off point, which we discussed, to take men or you know, but particularly men, also women, a little bit deeper down the road of like, I do think that there is value to a lot of these men who want solutions being seen and being heard. I have found that myself as someone who spent 10, 15 years uh, achieving and solving problems in the world to get to that classic position of, is this it? And in having some of those therapeutic relationships where I was able to speak things I hadn't spoken, uh, be received, that was tremendously valuable for me. And so when I do hear, and it doesn't sound like this is what you're doing, but sometimes when I watch these Instagram shorts of people saying, men want respect, women want love, I get frustrated because I think that that's a heavy dose of cultural conditioning or at least I have felt that in my personal experience that I want, I want both. I think
3: there can be, I have a real hard time with shorts. I Mm -hmm. use them because they're great at expanding the reach of the channel, but they are just polarizing the internet even more because there's (laughs) no way that you can even come close to telling the whole story in 60 seconds or less. And so no matter what you say, sometimes people forget that it's just a facet of the truth Mm. and you know, it creates a lot of reactivity. Yeah. Now, you were talking about, uh, yes, the Charisma on Command. I love your channel. I've personally followed it for years. And yeah, by definition, you're trying to help people solve internal problems with external solutions. When you look at the behavior of these actors on TVs and uh, TV shows and movies, you're basically saying, look on the outside. These are things that you can do. You can change on the outside to solve this internal problem. This is actually very close to acting. So we talked about this a little bit. My training is as a theater actor, and um, there's many, many different approaches to acting. The one that people are most familiar with is like the method acting approach. You know, Robert De Niro, uh, Al Pacino, Marlon Brando, they, they like worked as a taxi driver for eight months to kind of become the taxi driver from the inside out in preparation for their roles. Um, That's just one way of approaching acting. Another way, the one that I studied in conservatory is the Grotowski method, which is basically like, screw your internal experience, Mm -hmm. work on the external shell Like, if you change your posture, if you change your expression, if you change the rhythm of your movements and your gestures, it will eventually trickle down and affect your internal experience. Mm -hmm. And you can get there um, from the outside in just as much as from the inside out. And I think that's a solution that not a lot of people know. They think that it's fake. Mm -hmm. On some level, you might have to fake it until you make it, but the thing about this is if you If you walk around moping with your shoulders hunched and your eyes downcast and your tone is slow and lethargic and you're going to start to feel sad, you're going to start to feel mm, low and you can influence yourself more intentionally by changing your outward appearance than most people appreciate.
2: Yeah, I I think that at least in my own experience, it is incredible it would be way harder for more people to feel authentic happiness, authentic confidence by focusing exclusively on the inside, right? Sure. To, to do that as an internal game rather than, you know, stealing a couple of the lines from YouTube channels that you like, going out, having some good interactions with people that ref- they reflect and radiate positivity towards you. you it's not that the end of the game to take their validation and make yourself feel good, but it does create this sort of positive momentum. At least that's what I saw over the course of my, of my journey.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Confidence is the consistent felt experience of success. You do have to go out and do the thing. Otherwise, you're just fooling yourself. You have to do it enough times so that you feel all things being equal. You can do the thing. Mm -hmm. And then you have to take it in. That's an important component. I work with a lot of perfectionists who are actually drowning in the midst of their achievements. They're doing really well, but they're still hyper-focused on the 1% that they're not quite doing right. Mm -hmm. So every once in a while, we have to look back at how far we've come and allow our progress to emotionally impact us, to update our browsers, and to change our conceptualization of ourselves, yeah. like our models of who we are and of other people.
2: Yes, I totally agree. One of the, um, pivoting a bit, the things that you are uh, biggest on your YouTube channel, which I did I, I did most popular, but I also did most recent, and I see that Great. in the same way that that uh, we can become known for certain types of things with Charisma on Command That there is a preferred type of content that the majority of the YouTube audience likes to see from you, which is related to dating. And it seems like it is men learning about uh, some of the things that they're struggling with and dating with women. Same thing that we see on our channel. And so I wanted to ask you if you have a high-level overview of the modern struggle, let's start with from men and then from women's perspective. Uh, I sort of see it pop out in some of the titles, and I, I have my opinion of it, but I'm curious what you see on the inside.
3: Well... We're talking an eagle's eye view of the dating market. Is that what you're asking?
2: Let's say from the people on YouTube that are like consuming your content, what seems to be the problem that they are encountering?
3: For men, the common complaint is, where are the good women? Mm -hmm. Like, I can't get women. They're passing me by. They have a lot of, um, let's say, frustrated perspectives. Women just want rich guys. Women just want tall guys. They only go for the top 10%. So if you aren't a movie star, if you're not a millionaire, there's no point. Um, Like the dating apps don't work. Uh, If I try to approach a woman in real life, she might think it's sexual harassment Mm. and cancel me. There's a lot of fear and anger in the masculine experience relative to dating today.
2: Where is that always the experience of men, or is that, that's that's a today or the last, I don't know, 50 years thing, do you think?
3: I don't know. I mean, I wasn't around 50 years ago dating. Sure. It seems like the game has changed significantly in the last 50 years. Mm-hmm. I think that as a man, we're still, even in today's day and age with all of our, let's say, enlightened views of gender, sex, and power, we're still expected to initiate. Mm-hmm. Uh, women still expect the men to initiate, and they still expect the man to make the offer. And that offer could be, are you up, to can I buy you a drink, (laughs) to will you marry me? Yeah. It's like women are still waiting for the offer, which is Mm -hmm. really interesting because women under 30 without children are outperforming men in that same demographic in almost every quantifiable metric, most notably in education and earning. So they're doing really well. And to the extent that men made the offer in the past because they had the resources and the provision to... To offer a life to a woman, that's becoming increasingly less salient in today's Mm -hmm. day and age. But there's still um, this expectation that men initiate and make the offer. And if you're making the offer, you're going to hear no a lot. Like, a lot. A lot, yeah. Yeah. I got through my training in rejection earlier in life as an actor, because again, as an actor, you get told no constantly. And it's easy to take it personally, because you know, what are you selling? You're selling your appearance, you're selling your emotion, you're selling your performance. It's very, it's almost isomorphic with your experience of yourself. So it's very easy to take it personally. Um, You kind of have to get rejected enough to learn that it's just information and it's necessary to get through that in order to get something worthwhile. But Mm. men might have to go on hundreds of dates. I usually say I've gone on more first dates than most people have gone on dates. Mm-hmm. But I like dating, so I don't really have a problem with
2: that. <laughs> Got and so are these men frustrated that they're not finding, are that they're getting like no affection? Are the are, are you encountering on that online world everything from incels up to I just can't find a good woman to marry? Or where yeah. where are these no's occurring, Is I guess, at it, it, it the funnel of dating? Well, a lot me. of
3: no's, I think, are increasingly becoming self-inflicted. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned incels. There's that study that I'm sure you're aware of that I think— 30% of men under 30 have not had sex in the previous 12 months. And that's-
2: I a, haven't let that sink in. I've heard it, but that's thats thats incredible. It's wild. And yeah. that's
3: like tripled in the last decade. It's gone up for women too, but not nearly at the same rate. So I think a lot of men are seeing the stakes are really high. The barriers to entry are, they're really difficult to overcome. Uh, I am feeling hopeless. I'm going to try to turn a virtue out of a necessity and say, okay, mm. I'm going to focus on other things in my life, which might actually be a really good strategy for men. I personally don't think that men should even think about settling down until they're in their mid thirties. Mm-hmm. Um, because the uh, the game changes at 30 to begin to privilege men for the first time. Mm-hmm. Women awesome. have a significant advantage over men in the twenties.
2: Well, let's talk about this. So I think there's a, uh you I've seen you talk about romance on the channel and there I know that I had it I feel so far away from it that sometimes I don't talk about it but I have to recognize that there is a significant portion of men that didn't have that uh disruption of the romantic ideal that I had for my my love in high school that I thought if I uh knew her schedule so well and could find her wherever she was in the hallway and was just always there waiting for her as you know she needed a shoulder to cry on or someone to be there i I I had my lesson early. Well, that's what it looks like we're supposed to
3: do from the movies. Correct. And I'm just meeting you today, but from following you on the channel, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like you were a more socially awkward guy when you were younger. Yeah. And maybe like me, you took some of your cues on how you were supposed to behave relative to women from TV shows, from popular music, from Hollywood. Yes. And that doesn't work, man. Yes.
2: And I was fortunate enough to have, I think, really the disruption to that experience in my early 20s where I found the book, The Game, which I don't uh, recommend broadly because I think there's a lot of things that you don't need to take from it, including lying about, you know, I just saw a fight outside or there was, you know, a couple of things happening. But the general idea in it that the way that I was approaching women and dating was flawed deeply. Mm Mm-hmm that was an invaluable contribution to my life <laughs> and it totally transformed it so i had a tremendous amount of frustration prior to that luckily it wasn't um angry frustration it was it was more internal attack sure and then uh finding that busted this romantic thing but we should take a moment to talk about like this romantic vision that it seems like a lot of men that encounter your channel might have and are breaking out of and are frustrated yes. uh, as they un- encounter that they've been lied to
3: yes um I have an episode coming out. I've recorded it, but it hasn't been published yet. And it talks about the most common male romantic fantasy, which is really hard for me to verbalize. It cuts pretty deep. In my opinion, the most common male romantic fantasy is I can be loved for who I am. Mm -hmm. Because that's deep down in his heart of hearts what every man wants to hear from a woman is that you're enough Just being with you is enough. I don't need anything. I'm not like those other girls. I'm just in love with who you are." And the romantic idea is the purity of my love, like the depth of my affection, my loyalty and devotion. These are not only the highest things that a man can offer a woman, but it's the things that a woman is most looking for when she's filtering men and in her own selection process in the mating and dating game. And that's really not the case. Um, for better or for worse men have to provide value to justify the opportunity cost associated with choosing you over all the other options within a woman's frame
2: Mm -hmm. is it well it seems like that there is still a possibility at least from my perspective of let me step back I, I had that disruption and I went, you know what? I got to provide value. So that means I need to get in shape. I need to learn a bunch of languages. Let's make some money. Let's get some cool experiences under my belt. Let's learn how to talk to girls, do all these things. Mm-hmm. And then there's a frustrating sense if you do that and you succeed that I had of this woman loves my persona. She loves all of the things about me and I've lost track myself probably of my own essence in doing this. I've, I've uh, put on a lot of cool decorum to, to make myself more appealing. I am now hopeful, believing that in a committed relationship, you can get to the point where someone genuinely loves you for who you are. I believe that, yeah. Okay. But it's not necessarily, you know— that's going to happen in the courtship phase because you don't love her for who she is. You love her for the way that she looks and what she represents sexually to you or what she represents in your romantic brain or something like that.
3: That's what I was going to say is that that complaint is something that women have been duly familiar with for generations. Mm -hmm. It's like they have to wear makeup. They have to dress in a certain way. They have Mm -hmm. to perform femininity, which is a suite of behaviors that are very culturally specific. Um, So, and if she shatters that fantasy of womanness, of femininity too early, it can jeopardize her chances of securing the desired relationship. Mm-hmm. So women have understood more about how men select them than men have understood how women select them. Mm. But more and more men are waking up to that.
2: Yeah. Interesting. And so there's this. there are very practical considerations that people have when they're in this partnering phase and given dating apps and the ability to move to a big city, there's more options than ever. So the stark reality of I'm comparing you to my next best option, and that next best option is not necessarily based on deep seeing of one another's souls, but of physical attributes, financial attributes, those sorts of things. Sure, uh, Got it. And that's that's existing at the beginning. But I also see then there are these people that uh, they break the romantic thing, and but they remain in this jaded love isn't real thing because that was true in the way that they had to do the initial phases Mm -hmm. of dating. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that that's the end of the road, which is just something that has made me uncomfortable with some of the red pill content that I've seen in the past.
3: Love is absolutely real. And one of the things that I believe is true about love is it's actually one of the most common everyday experiences on the planet. Like cosmically, it's what keeps the universe together. Mm -hmm. I think we have a very skewed understanding of what love is and it tends in the romantic direction which is i think such a distortion of the reality of love that it is wrong to use the same word for it Mm -hmm. my definition of love is it's the humiliated self exalted and the humiliated self yes because the uh, it's like what are the the best examples of love that we have in say cinema or in history in cinema the classic romantic hero let's say is rick blaine in casablanca and at the end of that movie after struggling with the idea he puts the woman he loves on a plane with another man because he understands that it's good for her and for the social movement at the time and he suffers that humiliation such that the loved one has a better life than he could potentially offer her That's love. Love is wanting what is better for the other person. Love also, it's interesting, like boundaries is a relationship word. Relationships need boundaries. Relationships need rules and definitions. Love doesn't give a shit about any of those things. You think that love will only love where it's allowed? I mean, that's insane, right? Mm -hmm. So what I say is that people need things from other people. And the medium in which value is exchanged is called a relationship. And you have to provide value in order to secure a relationship. And there needs to be some kind of exchange at parity, more or less. And it's for the two people involved in that relationship to decide for themselves what is valuable and and how much it's valuable, etc. But you don't need a relationship for love. Because love is, you could say that it's beyond value or it's valueless. It's kind of the same thing from a, Zen perspective, and love will will consistently want what is best for the loved one, and think very little of itself. I mean that finds, in my opinion, it's apotheosis in like Christian mytho- mythology, mm. where it's the sacrifice. I'm willing to suffer everything out of my love for humanity. Mm-hmm. For instance, I've, yeah, I
2: thought a lot about that story. Uh, lately, the uh, I'm not a, I'm not a religious person, but the you know the sacrifice on the cross and uh, mm-hmm. I'm I'm this sacrificial idea of love. I also have a bit of a problem with, of course. And so I want to I want to dive into this with you. My current thinking on it, you know, take Jesus, is that if you look at it from a spiritual psychedelic sense, uh, well, if you look at it from a material sense, he took on everybody else's sin. It wasn't his cross to bear, but he bore it anyway. He he didn't commit the crime. He but he was going to go suffer. This burden for everybody else. Uh, the way that I'm reading it now, which is totally open to change, even in this conversation, is that the boundaries between him and other dissolved to the point where the pain of everyone was not their pain; it was his pain, of course, as well. And so, the bearing of hit that cross is not a sacrificial, though it might look like that if you're in this separate paradigm. It was that's why it was his cross to bear because it it was he could not help but to take on the pain. Of other people and, you know, go through that entire ordeal and therefore save humanity.
3: I mean, there's so many levels of understanding that you can approach that story. One level is how passive aggressive can you be? It's like, I never asked to be saved, mm-hmm. and now I'm supposed to be grateful for a sacrifice that was unnecessary and, and unasked for. Mm-hmm. It, it almost feels intrusive, and some people can have that experience, Other people who like to talk about boundaries and love and relationships uh, would say that there is like a a toxic element to that relationship. Like one of the things about love is I think that love is unconditional, but relationships are not. Mm -hmm. And certain things can happen in a relationship that we might call it exploitative. We might call it abusive. We might call it toxic but from the perspective of love that just wants to give out of the generosity of its experience and wants only the best for the other those things don't make any sense Mm -hmm. my model for love is the sun which just gives, it just shines. And it's not worried that this guy down here didn't appreciate the Mm -hmm. sunshine today or that this person's like, well, I never asked to be born or to look at the sun. Or (laughs) it's like the sun is so abundant in its own effulgence that it just shines. And it doesn't even worry about how it's being received, if it's being ignored or appreciated. Mm. And I think that's the humility of love also, which is maybe what warms the sun's heart you know pun intended is that people down here are just sort of carrying on with their lives without really any consideration for the sun Mm -hmm. because if we really stopped for a moment and thought man all of life would be extinct in the matter of days if the sun just disappeared or stopped shining like how much of our lives would be devoted to like giving praise to the sun and appreciating the sun? And we wouldn't be able to sit here and have a conversation. That we'd be too busy. (laughs) We'd be too busy just making sure that the sun was feeling good about its sacrifice. You know what Mm -hmm. I'm saying? But the highest form of love is almost to be invisible, Mm -hmm. to give and to enjoy the fact that there is no obligation even for gratitude. Yes.
2: Does not need to be received in order to be Given.
3: Yeah, there's been a study about this in, a, in Zen monasteries where they have discovered that the most useful form of assistance is, they called it invisible assistance, mm. which even absolves the recipient from the necessity of gratitude and appreciation. Mm. So in this monastery, if you see a sandal is broken, you just sort of take it and mend it and put it back. You don't say anybody that you did a good deed, you don't instagram it and put on mm-hmm. your social media. You just do what is necessary so that the smooth functioning of that society can continue. And mm-hmm. everyone is just doing that kind of behind the scenes whenever they get a chance. That would change society if we all kind of behaved in that way.
2: Of course. Now, a couple questions that come up. What if just one of us behaved that way? This seems so the scary thing is to go first in that sort of relationship. Sure. Now you're mending all the sandals, you're doing all the things. You're uh, trying to be the son. I have found that it is very difficult for me, at least, to be the son and hard. not require appreciation.
3: We're not the son, yes. <laughs> so if we call that maybe a covert contract. Sure. So we're doing things that look generous or altruistic, but really we're doing so because we expect on some level some appreciation, some gratitude, or with in the context of dating, uh, a sexual opportunity or the prospect of a relationship. And that's not love. That's bartering, disguised as love, Mm -hmm. which gives love a bad name. Mm -hmm. And if you're not there yet, that's okay. I'm not fully there either. You have to be a very enlightened individual to be there. But the way that you described it, in an everyday consciousness, it's almost like a prisoner's dilemma kind of a thing, Mm -hmm. which is that if I'm the first one to go, then everyone else benefits from my free labor and altruism and I don't receive anything in return from the perspective of love that's not even a consideration mm-hmm. it's just that i'm doing this because it feels like this is what i should do mm-hmm. it's related to your conceptualization of jesus on the cross which is as a person elevates his or her consciousness that person has a a more inclusive definition of self mm-hmm. so that you know at lower levels the self is just what's bounded by the body and the individual ego but you have to understand that you cannot exist in isolation. No man is an island. We all have relationships. And those relationships have a reciprocal influence on our well-being and happiness. So on some level, I am my relationships. I am the people that I keep around me that I interact with the most. If, if that's harmonious, I'm going to be at peace. Mm-hmm. It's possible to be at peace in the midst of chaos, but let me tell you, it's much more difficult, right? So then you have an understanding of yourself as related to your immediate sphere of influence. And you can keep going to the point where all of existence is at least potentially included in your idea of self. And that's mm-hmm. what we might call a, a, a transpersonal or transcendent experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've talked about loving like the sun. Another model that I often use with respect to loving without emotional attachment is to kind of love people like cats.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: I, I see you have a few dogs. <laughs> have, you, have you ever had cats? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, you. If you try to pick up a cat and it doesn't <laughs> want to be picked up, you're going to get the claws, right? Mm-hmm. And cats generally don't come when they're called. Cats are fairly independent, just like people. And the idea here is to let people come and go in their own time. If you want to enjoy a, a moment with a certain cat, like put out good milk.
0: Mm-hmm. The
3: cat will keep coming back when the cat is ready for that kind of attention. And when the cat comes back, you can have an interaction, you can have a moment. And then when the cat's ready to go, no big deal, thank you. It was nice to, you know, just to pet, on, pet you on the couch for a little bit. Yeah. And then we can move on to other things. But it's like, for for me, one of the issues when I was in my 20s was trying to make relationships the center of my life. and It sounds like that's related to what you were describing. Mm-hmm. Now I think a relationship is more... Um, It's very important, but it's secondary to, let's say, my personal mission, what I'm here to do in life.
2: Uh, You know, it was back in the old ad copy for Charisma on Command. I've since taken it out, but it was the fundamental line was, you know, relationships are everything. And I think that was reflective of my own honest perspective at the time, but a dysfunctional one. Mm. And the lack of independent self-directedness and self-okayness and self-love created this whole coping mechanism which spawned a company, which spawned a whole lifestyle (laughs) and all of these other sorts of things from it. But I I very much agree that uh, as I have done more self-healing, I see the the pressure that I put on relationships, the need that I have for them dissipates, which actually creates space for what we're talking about, which seems like genuine love, space, sunshining type energy to arise because there is no longer that need to get whatever it is from the relationship. Mm-hmm.
3: You talked about, used the term codependent earlier, mm-hmm. and you just used healing. I released an episode recently called Why Men End Up with Train Wrecks. Mm-hmm. And I think it has to do with the fact that hurt people, people with emotional wounding, have a sixth sense for finding other people with complementary wounds. And they come together to reenact the conditions of their wounding they're going to create a situation that looks different but feels emotionally the same Mm -hmm. and they do this they do this because they would like to heal that wound by achieving a different outcome Mm -hmm. the issue with that is that wounded people are really good at recreating the situation of their wounding but they're not really good at solving that wounding they mostly haven't developed the skills to achieve a different outcome so it's somewhat tragic they come together they set the stage everything is ready and (laughs) there you go (laughs) at the end of this romeo and juliet we're not gonna die but it's like we're five acts in and of course the um the ending is predictable yeah so it's generally advised to try to heal that on your own before you go looking for a partner
2: yeah it's incredible to watch i mean I, i love trashy reality television And I'm watching Too Hot to Handle right now. And there's the one girl who has a history of dating players. And the guy that she picks has another girl and she steals him from that girl. And then he strays from her and she's heartbroken. And it is so – I think part of the appeal of reality TV is you get to see from your privileged perspective how obvious other people's patterns are. Uh, what is frustrating to realize is that it's very likely almost everyone I've ever known has one of those patterns themselves.
3: Yeah. The fish can't
2: see the water. Yeah. That the people who, especially like acquaintances can look right in and instantaneously understand what's going on. The closer friends might be uh, selected so as not to put as much pressure on it. That's why they're part of that, you know, enabling ecosystem. Mm. But I've seen the same thing where, where you can Set the stage. Good news from that is you're gonna get lots of chances to try to solve this pattern in your life, which, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and hopefully, uh, I think this is something that I'm working on with my current girlfriend is we've set the stage. We're there, you know, where we've, the stage has been perfectly set for us to either reenact or find a way, a different way through this. Mm -hmm. And I'm uh, hopeful that we find a different way.
3: I talk about something therapeutically called the crossroads. Mm -hmm. So the crossroads, just like in real life, is a moment where a, a decision really matters. We have to make thousands of decisions every day, but most of those decisions don't really impact our futures in very significant ways. But when you're at a crossroads, that decision can lead you into two radically different directions. And when you're trying to create a different outcome, you have to make the, the right decision for you at the crossroads. You can make that decision 10,000 times not at the crossroads, and it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. So. I teach people that it's important to recognize the crossroads because it's an internal experience. So it's usually some sort of somatic activation. So it could be, like for me, my heart starts to yes. race, race and uh, I start to get a little nauseated. Some people, it's a tight chest or maybe they feel a little dizzy. Maybe they get tingling sensations. It's some sort of sign that your body's saying, hey this feels familiar, this is an opportunity to make a decision that's actually going to radically alter your trajectory. One of the things, I got my start actually working with addicts, um, addicts and alcoholics, and you, people say all the time, oh, I've quit drinking, or I've quit using. It's like, no, you haven't. Um, you only get to quit when you want to use and you don't. Mm. The craving is the crossroads. Saying that you've quit before, while well, you, well, you don't have the craving to use is like, okay, yeah. man whatever you say, Um, it's so much easier to quit then than when you have this full-body experience that's pulling you in the direction of your habitual behavior. But that's the actual opportunity to make a different choice. And the great thing about this is that if you learn to recognize the crossroads, you can leverage them. You can make 10 decisions at 10 subsequent crossroads to change a behavior semi-permanently. Versus trying in ten thousand different ways, not at the crossroads to not have the result that you're looking for. Does mm. that make sense? Yeah. Well,
2: those crossroads scenarios where your body is activated, you get those somatic things. What yeah. I have found, at least in myself, is that a lot of people call this being triggered. Oftentimes, mm-hmm. you you have that happen, and when you're triggered, the intensity is such that, at least for me, you can retreat away, you can dissociate, you can go into your thoughts in your head. Do that. Yeah. You can lose track of your body, and so. It's not even always obvious when you're at a crossroads because you've almost gone th- out of body and you're witnessing yourself, or you're just like that. That went brown for a while. If I'm, I'm a dissociative type, when things,
3: can- <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, that would be tough. Yeah, yeah I, I've. I I mean, we're not even that. Like you,
2: you know, I'm sure you know the the emotion of being super angry at someone, and and you're irate, and you're in it, and you're positive that you're right, but you've lost track of heart and terror or rage that's building up inside of you. Mm -hmm. So, I guess in deepening my somatic connection, I have found tremendously valuable for recognizing those crossroad moments and then choosing differently.
3: And in conjunction with that, a practice of mindful awareness, Mm -hmm. because. The thing about being triggered emotionally is that it can happen in a blink of an eye. Someone can go from more or less baseline to enraged in the fraction of a second Mm -hmm. or terrified and dissociated in the same amount of time. So things can happen very, very quickly in the world of the psyche. If you can bring more, let's say, mindful detachment, the self as the observer whereas the psychological phenomena, the thoughts and the emotions are at some distance from consciousness itself, then you create a little space that's a buffer between the triggering stimuli and the self-validation, which makes it true, which cascades the emotional response. Mm In the beginning, it can just feel like a fraction of a second. Sometimes that's enough to drive a wedge in there to prevent the uh, fluorescence of a hyper-emotional state. Um, But with practice, you can kind of dilate that buffer Mm -hmm. so that you're kind of sitting deeply and stilly within yourself, and you can be at peace even in the most mm, chaotic or diffusive situations. What When
2: you're working with clients, meditation comes to mind. Do you have other techniques or practices that help them to insert and find that sliver of space between trigger and self-identification
3: with? Insight is really helpful here. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a, I read in a Buddhist text a long time ago that there are certain monks that could observe that there were 10,000, which probably is not an exact mm-hmm. number, but it's supposed to mean A lot there's 10,000 of discrete psychological events that occur every second Mm. and with enough careful observation and insight we can discern these different separate psychological events so one thing that I do is I try to walk people through their experience of let's say the last time they lost their temper or the last time that they dissociated Mm. and when we observe certain cognitive and emotional phenomenon very closely and carefully, we see that it's not just, and before I knew it, I was gone. Mm. Like there, there are a predictable cascade of psychological events that occur before the dissociation or before the rage episode. Yeah. And once you name them and the person recognizes uh, those things inside of himself or herself, it becomes much easier for them to see moving forward. Sometimes you have to believe it to see it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes giving something a name actually makes it visible. Mm -hmm. And we're not very good at talking about these things. Uh, We certainly don't talk about them in schools. We don't talk about them very widely in our culture. And because they don't have names, they're functionally invisible to the vast majority of people.
2: What are these things that we don't talk about, these names, or do you have any examples? Uh,
3: the words are difficult to to use. So, one thing that I talk about let's let's say um, let's talk about panic attacks. Panic mm-hmm. attacks are something that I've personally suffered from. They're absolutely terrif- terrifying and terrible. I wouldn't wish them on anybody. And a lot of people come to me for help resolving this difficulty. And Panic attacks is actually one of the, let's say, mental illnesses or disorders that psychotherapy has a really high success rate yeah. with. Like, you can actually cure panic attacks with psychotherapy. And one way that I talk about this experience is that it's caused by a catastrophic thought cascade and a positive feedback loop of attention. So um, generally what happens is panic Disorder really becomes a problem after the initial panic attack, which almost always appears out of the blue for people. But it's so terrifying that after that, they develop a sort of hypervigilance. They don't want it to happen again. They're looking for
2: the panic attack. They're looking
3: for signs that it's about to happen, Mm -hmm. like their heart rate starts to get a little faster, or they start to feel hotter on their skin, or they start to feel lightheaded, Now, this hypervigilance is actually what creates the opportunity for the next panic attack, because if you go looking for something, you're going to find something. Attention is also sort of a a magnifying glass. Whatever we look through, it will get bigger. Attention also changes physiological behaviors. This is why um, when you go into the doctor's office and they put this stethoscope on your back and they tell you to breathe, breathe in, breathe out, they're actually listening to your heart if you knew that, it would change your heart rate and it would create like false positives for arrhythmias and huh, things like funny. that. And so they get you to focus on your breath so that your heart rate remains unchanged. Well, I just ruined that for me now and all the no. doctors. To- <laughs> yeah, what do they call that white coat um, white coat stress or something like yeah. that, yeah. Um, so you have this hypervigilance, you draw your attention to something, attention is the conduit through which things enter your consciousness, attention itself magnifies it. Then on top of that, There's no problems yet, actually, but on top of that is a judgment that this is bad, it's starting again, or I'm having a stroke, I'm having a heart attack. And then even that's not necessarily a problem. Then there's the validation of that belief, which is that I accept that this is a true reality, Mm -hmm. and I'm now cognitively fused with my experience, and then it's off to the races. And all of that can happen like that. But there has to be at least, let's say, six discrete steps in the process of a panic attack that can occur in, you know, three or four seconds. Mm -hmm. And by naming them and spelling out the necessary sequence of events, people can begin to see that in their own experience and begin to kind of slow down that process. Because at every link in that chain, you can intervene and disrupt the catastrophic thought cascade before it fluoresces into panic. Mm. Does that make sense? Of course. Yeah.
2: The same thing I think occurs at uh, lower tier or grade issues than panic attacks so if you're sure. out in a social event you're nervous about am I? do I look stupid here do I need to drink in my hand or whatever it's you know we've, we've given people advice of how to disrupt these cascade of thoughts and events that occur which is uh oftentimes okay get your hands out get your get your elbows off of the side you know we're just trying to break that patterned response of anxiety that arises get people into a weirdly enough it gets you I don't know if it gets you into presence but it gets you at the very least out of that triggered state and then you can chill be in a room as an adult and start a conversation without having bright red cheeks or terror or stuttering voice or something like that
3: i i I use this research in my dissertation study almost all mental disorders whether it's panic attacks or social anxiety they have at their core a syndrome called self-focused attention Mm -hmm. it's like these people their self is too much for them and they become more and more involved in themselves. It's like a spiral. The self is a labyrinthine, infinite thing, and people mm-hmm. can be sucked into it. Generally, people are happiest when they forget about themselves, yeah. when they're in flow state, for and instance. That's why
2: they drink at, at these social events, because it allows you to lose connection with your own <laughs> internal self, and you're just vibing with the room at that point.
3: Yeah, but yeah. You, you know, it's kind of nutty. I mean, yes. I, 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 hopefully— Anybody who drinks has, at some point, had the experience of going to one of these parties, being sober, yep. and seeing how everyone else is behaving, <laughs> and then having the experience like, oh, that must be how I've been behaving yeah. when I've been drinking. Yeah, that's an eye-opening experience. Yeah. So, yeah, it does help to smooth the wheels, alcohol, but it also comes with a host of liabilities. Of course, of course. No, and that
2: was one of the first things I had to... Uh when I made a commitment towards working on some of my social skills, dropping alcohol was, was a prerequisite because if you're, you. oh, if you're drinking, you're not – one, I treated it kind of like a classroom. It's like, would you drink before you went to class? You're not going to learn very much if you do that. But I had that experience many, many times of looking around and going, oh, that's, that's what I looked like. It, you know th- that was the caliber of my conversation. This is what it I looked. You know, spit my sweet. Hey, when you, doing? <laughs> it wasn't uh, not as not as sexy on the outside as it might have felt on the inside.
3: I hear you. I mean, there's something ab- about that. Like I did a lot of drugs and and alcohol when I was younger, yeah. and it, like it got me to a place where I had no consciousness of any kind of consequences my behavior might have. Mm-hmm. Which made me incredibly confident, Mm -hmm. Um, but also reckless and kind of nutty.
2: Yep. Yeah. Not worth it, ultimately. I I agree. So pivoting again, let's go back. We were chatting about uh, men, women, dating, all of these kinds Uh, of things. Full circle. Full circle. So we talked about uh, the guys have, let's see if I can recap this. They're looking for good women, but they feel frustrated. They've been told no potentially many, many times and uh, some of them have quit on that seemingly what are you teaching them in the youtube channel and th- that is helping them get from that place of frustration to the next stage
3: hmm i'm not sure my first experience with let's call the it the black pill mm-hmm. was in the comments of my youtube channel yeah. i didn't really know that this existed and it's my first exposure to it was uh, it was hard like it, the hopelessness and the despair, and also the simmering anger, I think, that the hopelessness is defense against Mm -hmm. seemed really a bigger problem than I had anticipated. I don't know if that's just the internet, and so this is how people behave anonymously in these forums, but if people actually believe those things in the the privacy of their own consciousness, and they're a non-insignificant minority of men, that's a serious issue. Yeah. So... It's very hard to get through to those sorts of people because hopelessness is a defense against hope. Hope means you get back on the roller coaster, mm-hmm. which is please, I'm dizzy, I've I've fallen down three, four, eight, nine, ten times. Just let me stay down. Let yeah. the ref count me out. Don't give me hope anymore. And they get angry and frustrated with anybody who tries to challenge, that mindset that keeps them from more pain.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of safety in, in staying down.
3: Certainly. I did my pre-doc internship at a, the cancer support community in the East Bay. So I was dealing for two years with stage four cancer patients and their caregivers. I learned so much about life from working with that population. And we often talk about hope and hope can be a dangerous thing mm-hmm. especially for some people it's never for anybody else to say when somebody should stop hoping that's always a personal experience but we do know that objectively speaking a lot people will reach a point where any plausible hope that things will improve is unjustified mm-hmm. and some people resist surrendering that hope and that causes them an inordinate amount of pain. Mm-hmm. And it's usually the caregivers that's harder for them yeah, to surrender to that hope than the patients themselves who are going through the treatments, which are often extremely painful, if not tortuous. And they reach that point where it's like, I'm okay with this. I'm at peace. We're going to move forward to the transition. So hope is a dangerous thing. It is a source of pain. Interestingly, it was in the box of ills that Pandora opened yeah. and released into the world with you know, evil and deception. And what was hope doing in that box? That was like the last one when she closed the box, right? Yeah. So there's an interpretation that hope is the evil that lives inside.
2: Yeah. It's like the worst one. (laughs) Potentially. Yeah. 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 (laughs) It's very
3: strange that something good would be locked up in that box with everything Mm -hmm. else. You know what Mm -hmm. I'm saying? So there is a darker side to hope. Mm -hmm. Let's not say that it's purely a positive thing
2: well let me ask because the difference in these two scenarios is one i imagine the hope is that this person is going to make it through cancer and live a cancer-free life after mm-hmm. and the other version we're talking about hope hope is that what are these young men what would the hope be that they could feel connected and loved in their life or that they would have a relationship it seems it seems whether hope is dangerous or is not is deeply related to what one is hoping for
3: Sure, because it's very easy to look at a young man's relationship history, especially if he's in his 20s and conceivably has decades of life ahead Mm -hmm. of him, where dating actually gets easier for Mm -hmm. men as they age. Like dating in my 30s was 10 times easier than dating in my 20s. Sure, It's very easy to judge these folks and saying, you gave up too soon. Mm -hmm. But that's why I said that it's never for somebody else to decide when to give up hope. I've gone through periods of hopelessness mm-hmm. following uh, difficult breakups in the past mm-hmm. and I think that was a phase that I had to go through. If somebody tried to instill hope in me prematurely, I would have snapped at them and um I wanted to stay down for a while. Yeah. Um and I got through it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think people have to get up in their own time. I think it's a process.
2: Got it. So and I guess if if it is the case that this is manifesting itself primarily in internet communities and comments, and it is not spilling over to real-world violence or things like that, the best solution to this hopelessness might be you're permitted your hopelessness. (laughs) Just allow people to to have that?
3: Well, they're going to have it whether you permit it or not, so As opposed
2: to trying to intervene, support, change minds, etc.
3: Yeah, I think that's probably for the best because it's also, let's be honest, no one's really chomping on the bit to get into a relationship with these men. That's why they're Mm -hmm. feeling hopeless. So it's not like the women are missing out on great potential Mm -hmm. partners, because if they thought that, they probably wouldn't be in the situation that they find themselves in. Mm. So I think that it's important to really appreciate that it's actually very, very hard to be a young man. I think that's something that our culture does a terrible job of recognizing. Mm -hmm. Like being a 20-year-old man is really, really tough, because, You are invisible to women functionally, unless you're really cute, but let's say 80% of guys aren't that. You have no resources. You have no status. You have no game. You have no relationship experience. You have no maturity. How can you take the lead and confidently move the relationship in a certain direction? Uh, Women just sort of expect men to know what to do even sexually. Like, I'd learned where the vas deferens were in Mm -hmm. high school. I don't know if that really helped me, (laughs) right? The fallopian tubes. (laughs) It's like, that didn't actually help me be a a confident lover. Um, And no one really wants to teach men how to be those things. A lot of women just sort of expect that men should know how to do it, Mm -hmm. which is kind of unfair. Um, But because of what we know how women choose men, most 20-year-old men don't have what women are looking for, so they're functionally invisible to them. By the same token, they're also kind of useless to other guys because what do guys want? They want competent teammates. It's like, what are your skills, man? What can you do? What are you good at? Nothing. You need a job. You need training. It's like, oh, geez. Oh, man. So like you're a liability for me right now. I need somebody who already knows what they're doing because I got this business. I don't have time to teach you. It's very hard to get your first relationship. It's very hard to get your first job. These things tend to get easier as you age. And 30 is really the pivot point in the game of mating and dating.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I very much agree with everything you said. Luckily, and I think I encountered, I don't know, a couple of books, a couple of beliefs that made my 20s not necessarily the most successful period of my life, not even close, but the most exciting period of my life because I had such a ridiculous degree of hope. I believed that with effort, anything was possible in my 20s. And I've, you know, I encountered reality on a number of occasions and bumped up against it pretty hard. And so it does seem that messages and i even see andrew tate connecting with young men in this that that you uh are moldable growable evolving uh and don't need to have success right now that those messages seem to be resonating at least on youtube very strongly with men like just grind out your 20s or work that that seems to be a message that young men do connect with
3: it's a it's solution it's yeah. like okay You're saying that if I focus on myself, if I prioritize Mm -hmm. my health, if I get some money, if I learn some skills, if I develop a lifestyle, that's a pathway to greater success with women Mm -hmm. and I'm benefited in the process. Okay, great. Like men will do that for 10 years. They'll grind for 10 years with the hope that it will give them better sexual options. It's amazing. That kind and of I had a great time doing it. It was so fun. <laughs> was. I'm, I'm really happy because it, it can be joyless if you're just doing things you don't want to do with the hope or expectation yes. that you're going to get a woman further down the road. That's not worth it.
2: What was necessary was uh, that I guess made it fun was that it wasn't get money, get fit, get this. It was also chat with women and get rejected doing that. But Get a little bit farther, you know what I mean. Now she she laughs at your joke. Uh, now you're going on a first date. Now she wants to go on a second date. That mm-hmm. that progression because women were the driving factor behind it all for sure. me at twenty. I didn't give a damn for most about. Guys. I didn't give it, I didn't, nothing else mattered. Yeah. <laughs> Money it was all secondary. Uh, that progression and not waiting until I was thirty to begin that game, but in, instead having you know relationships throughout my twenties was. Uh, very exciting. I, I don't know. I felt like king of the world for a lot of my 20s. And it's funny to look back.
3: <laughs> I had a lot of very exciting and passionate relationships yeah. when I was in my 20s too. I'm, I'm, I'm happy for my experiences. I definitely got uh, emotionally beat up from mm-hmm. a lot of those. Me too. Right?
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. So uh, you had a video where you were talking about essential versus performative masculinity. Mm. And I wanted to ask you about this because you said the two things that make a man essentially, and these are uh, metaphorical rather than literal, but are spine and balls. And so first, can you just uh, unpack that a little?
3: Sure. So uh, there's a lot of discourse about what it means to be a man Mm -hmm. in the modern age that I think would be absolutely ludicrous even 100 years ago, where people just sort of understood what it meant to be a man. And we also know that masculinity is a bit different from femininity in this regard. It's like women become women more or less when they become reproductively viable. It's like they are a full woman. You never say, you never hear the insult that you're not a real woman but you can often hear the insult that you're not a real man. Mm -hmm. So it's like men can reach sexual maturity, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're men. They have to do other things to become real men versus women. They're not girls anymore. They've reached sexual maturity, but that's it. Like there's no fake women and real women Mm -hmm. there, but there can be fake men and real men, a real mensch. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? And I think that this was recognized because in most, let's say tribal communities, the way that human beings have lived for hundreds of thousands of years, there was actually a pretty big separation between the, the spheres of influence of men and women. Women were taking care of the food and the children. So the children, whether they were boys or girls, basically lived in the mothers, the women's world, mm-hmm. whereas the men are you know, building the huts and going out on the hunts and doing that thing. And so girls, they have this seamless trajectory they stay in that domestic sphere, mm-hmm. in that traditional way of life, whereas boys have to be plucked out of it. And they have to encounter some of the harsher truths of reality, and they generally have to do that at like 13 and 14. That's why most coming-of-age rituals happen around that time, bar and bat mitzvahs, for example. In an almost every culture on the planet, there's some sort of rite of passage for men, for boys, that they don't exist for girls. And it's usually having to do with bravery and um, courage and often like pain tolerance. Like there's this far out rite of passage that occurs in a, still today, in a tribe in the Amazon rain basin where they make these like mittens out of leaves and fill them with- Fire ants. Fire ants, exactly. And these are 12, 13 year old boys and they have to stick their hands in these mittens for like an hour at a time and a single bite is enough to, I mean, it's agony, according to the Westerners who have experienced this. And they have to do this not just once, but like 20 times before they're recognized as a man. They have to do this without crying. They Mm -hmm. have to do this without screaming. And only then it's like playtime is over. You don't get to be coddled anymore. You don't get to be nurtured anymore. We need you to be tough because we're going to rely on you during the hunts. We need to know that you
1: can... uh,
0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
3: You're not going to complain when, things, when the rain starts to come or we get lost or we get hungry. It's like you would be a liability and all of our lives would be jeopardized because of that. Mm-hmm. So we need to be sure about you before we take you on in the sphere of men. Mm-hmm. We don't have that anymore. Man, for better or for worse, right? There's some far-out rite of passages, man. That's just one of them. So um, here we are today, and we're trying to figure out what it means to be a man. And we can look back to a few generations ago, and we have some cultural icons, like the Marlboro man. That's a real man. He's got the Stetson Mm -hmm. hat. He's a cowboy, stoic. That's a masculine archetype. Um, We have like a bodybuilder, hyper-masculine dude. There's traditional machismo. These are all... I call them performative um, elements of masculinity because they're behaviors that you can do or not do to communicate a culturally specific form of masculinity. And femininity has its own component. Like femininity differs from, uh, let's say, indigenous community to indigenous community. Mm -hmm. It even differs from some parts of the industrialized world from the others, right? And
2: and it does seem very contextual based on what is needed in that society. Often it's, you know, we need to hunt, we need to get food, and that's going to require pain. But that those rites of passage prepare people to exist in a context.
3: It does, but we're getting further and further away from like those survival exactly. subsistence. Exactly, And so I think that performative masculine and femininity, certainly in like Western Europe for the last three or 400 years, has really deviated from, let's say, the skill set that might be more biologically encoded into men and women to survive at a more subsistence level mm-hmm. of existence when you, a society generates enough wealth, there is a certain buffer between the sheer realities of existence and everyday life mm-hmm. such that we don't really have to send the best hunters out for food. If they come back with less food less frequently, we're probably not going to starve, so why not give them the shot at being a hunter, especially if they want to? Like, mm-hmm. what's the harm? Do you see? Mm-hmm. We have more of a buffer. But that also means that our depictions of masculine and femininity can be more divorced, let's say from uh, necessity. And that's why you have things like, you know, the three inch golden lilies in pre-communist China with a foot binding thing. It's like, what does that have to do with um, survival? But that's a form of femininity that was emergent in a very particular time and place. Or you have African tribes where they elongate the necks and things like that. Victorian age women with the bustles and the, the big butts and the corsets, it's like, and the powdered wigs, like what does that have to do with biological men and women, do you mm-hmm. see? So the, the further we get from the realities and the necessities of nature, the more we kind of get to be artistic and experimental, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's just a lot of content on social media about how to be a man. And it's like, bench press your body mm-hmm. weight. Uh, grow a beard. Um, earn money. Earn money. Yeah. Get a gun. Learn to lasso a horse. I mean, it's like, it's a, it's basically learn these skills and do these things and you will become a man. And I don't... Change a tire. <laughs> well, great. I mean, and again, these are very useful skills, yeah. but
2: like... Well, increasingly less so, right? Like to generate... I don't know. I've never changed a tire. and
3: <laughs> I've learned to change a tire because I did feel like... And I, I and phone. I did get judgment <laughs> from people. Phone. It's like you don't know you're a man and you don't know how to change a tire. And I was like, yeah, no one taught me, man. AAA
2: and a cell phone and and AAA and a credit is card, great, you know. But it is helpful
3: to know how to change a tire. So <laughs> a lot course. of these skills and these behavioral suites are useful for men and for women, and they can increase your quality of life and you know, open opportunities that might not otherwise exist for you for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that a lot of them can be more performative than essential. And so I'm trying to cut through this. Partly I guess it's somewhat self-serving because I'm I'm not a traditionally masculine looking guy. You know, I'm not jacked. I'm not I'm 5'11, you know, so I'm not this towering presence. Um I don't uh you know, I don't ride a horse. I don't know why I keep coming back to cowboys, but that's where my mind is at today. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's the drive here on Malibu. Oh yeah. Um, so I'm not a traditionally masculine guy and, you know, I wasn't the quarterback of the football team or anything things like that, but I think that essentially what it means to be a man is to have a spine and to have a pair. And I define that as spine is knowing who you are, which is pretty much isomorphic for what you believe and to have the willingness to stand up and stop hiding and to say, this is who I am. This is what I believe and to be willing to accept the consequences of taking the risk of becoming someone. Women can do this too, um, but we do know that women tend to be more uh, cautious and conventional. There's safety in numbers. Men, the greatest risk about being a man is like not taking a risk. Mm-hmm. Whereas women can kind of play it safe, and they will more or less kind of be okay. Um, a lot of guys, if they play it safe, they just get lives of quiet desperation at best, and the world passes them by at worst. So they have to kind of take risks. Mm. And a lot of guys are hiding. And our culture certainly doesn't make it safe to come out of hiding if you have certain viewpoints that go against, let's say, the uh, standard media narrative. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. So um, people are becoming more timid and reticent to say, this is who I am and this is what I believe. But it's absolutely essential. You have to stand up. That's what a spine does. It allows you to, you know, stand erect. And once you stand up on this planet, you cast a shadow, uh, because everything under the sun casts a shadow. And so you have to deal with the consequences of taking the risk of becoming someone. So that's part of it. Mm -hmm. Um, The having a pair is more associated with being, being willing to like put it all on the felt, which is like, I am willing to sacrifice my livelihood, my relationships, my happiness, uh, even my life. I mean, that's what warriors who are still largely massive men have, are expected to do. Mm-hmm. It's like, I am willing to put it all on the line for what I believe. And that is something that you can do uh, physically, like a, like a warrior or a soldier. It's also something you can do intellectually. And I think it's becoming increasingly important to do it intellectually in today's day and age. That's where a lot of the real risks are being taken in the realm of ideas. And that's where the new battle lines are being drawn.
2: And so that might look like splitting from what your community or is safe to say on social media because you deeply believe it Mm -hmm. and you're willing to suffer the social consequences of not fitting in or...
3: That's right. And it's actually much harder to do that than people think. I mean, we just went through a period where we saw the social impacts of, let's say, obedience and conformity. Mm -hmm. Like the shutdowns in this country were basically a conformity study writ large. Mm -hmm. It was fascinating to observe. And people who didn't comply with the expectations of others, even if they were family members, even if they were friends, they were ostracized, they couldn't work, um, they experienced a great deal of vitriol and animosity. That, took balls to be able to say, hey, you know, you're you're going to do what you're going to do. This is what I believe. And to risk losing even valued relationships and opportunities as a consequence of that.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: The point that I have here is that there's a pain either way. So there's the pain associated with others not understanding who you are and turning their back, losing relationships, losing money, losing opportunities. That's painful. But there's also a pain associated with not doing all those things and i did a for example a um a consultation with a man a week or two ago he disagreed with a lot of the policies around the shutdowns and in his heart of hearts he didn't agree with them but he gave in and he eventually consented to doing certain things right and he came to me because his sense of self was somewhat shattered is that he saw, how can I really believe that I have this courage, that I have this spine, that I have this strength. When, when the rubber hit the road, I caved, I folded, and I did the thing that was convenient because I was afraid of losing my job or losing my relationships. And he's now struggling with the consequence of the choices that he's made. I think that probably mm-hmm. a lot of people in today's day and age are actually doing that.
2: Yeah, how does one have a healthy measure of self, I don't, perhaps self-doubt isn't the right word, but oh shit, everybody says something, I need to double, triple check my, my work on sure. this one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is, there, is there advice that you have for blending that? Because definitely you, you want two things. You want individual expression and social cohesion and there is, uh, most people do most things in a way that makes society work. And so if you stray wildly from that, that seems to be a sign that you should uh, at least if you decide to walk around in your hands because you determine that's the best thing to do, double check. So I'm curious, I I agree with you on this particular COVID thing. If COVID had been uh, more like the bubonic plague or just in that direction, we would have a very different, you know, it probably would have been appropriate to get masks and stay inside and shut down and all those different sorts of things. But I suspect there would be a contingent of people that were just like, fuck, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go. It's possible. But I think <laughs> if we
3: also were dealing with the bubonic plague, Plague. we wouldn't need mandates because it would become a very palpably obvious. I mean, the the foremost reason why anybody would undergo a medical intervention is mm. for self-preservation. Mm-hmm. And so if people saw, oh, my God, there's dead littering the streets. Sure. I don't think we'd have to pass a law and punish people for not complying. I think people would be lining up.
2: Let me ask then about duty towards others, because I can imagine both balls and spine leading to, and I'm not saying that this is what you're encouraging. I think mostly good things would come of this, but towards like psychopathic behavior where you're exclusive of others. So is there something else, ball, spine, heart? I know that that's not exclusive to men in that case, but uh, some degree of connection and compassion. I hear what
3: you're saying. Let's go back to your initial question, which is... um, I think it requires a great deal of humility Mm -hmm. because I'm wrong like 20 times a day. You know what I'm saying? I I don't always get it right. And if you and I disagree about something, I'd think, okay, well, that's interesting. I mean, Charlie seems like he's a sane, intelligent guy. I'm going to take that into consideration. But if like the 99 people closest to me all disagree with me, like I am going to be looking very, very carefully at my decision. I'll be analyzing my biases. I'll be going to the research. If there is any kind of empirical evidence to be reviewed, I will be double and triple checking myself. Like the more that you stand in contrast to those around you, the more humility you need to understand that most likely you're wrong, Mm -hmm. but you're not always wrong. Like sometimes the individual is right and the Mm -hmm. crowd is wrong. And it's actually a greater danger that the crowd is wrong than the individual is wrong, right? So you talk about how most people are mostly doing things that are pro-social. I would agree with that. But we also, I think, generally have this this opinion that vibrates through our society, which is that things are just sort of going off the rails or that things are going to hell in a handbasket or however you wanna put it. So it might take individuals to stand up against the crowd, if in terms of the majority, we all sort of in our private consciousness and relationships feel like things are moving not in a positive direction. Mm. Like someone has to stand up and say, I don't want to participate in that anymore. And maybe if some people do, they will be, usually throughout history when people do that, they tend to get martyred one way or the other, but um, enough of that could happen over time that, collectively we can make a different decision.
2: Mm. And presumably that, uh, you know, pear and uh, spine would would be beneficial to women as well, I imagine. This is, this. I guess, one of the things that I've struggled is I've been very interested in masculinity lately, is I've been looking for a contemporary way that is exclusive of women of describing masculinity. And inevitably what I find is that there's these wonderful ways of describing it, like spine and in a pair but when you look at the metaphor that seems to be something that would be fantastic and i do see exemplified in some women perhaps mm-hmm. i don't know if it's even less often <laughs> so i guess it, maybe it is in my in my limited experience i don't i don't know how to i even wonder sometimes if the word masculinity and femininity is a useful way of thinking about things i've tended towards just thinking about what does a mature human look like mm-hmm. and shooting towards that because i can't find anything exclusive of women in in some of the definitions of masculinity.
3: Yeah, it's really tough because now we're getting into the- exclusive femininity. The hair splitting with respect to sex and gender. Like Mm -hmm. there's men and women, there's males and females, there's Mm -hmm. masculinity and femininity, Mm -hmm. and those are not necessarily the same thing. And we are talking about masculinity, and men have both masculine and feminine elements, and women have both masculine and feminine elements. The most- Masculine people tend to be men, and men in general, on average, are more masculine than women on average. The most feminine people in the world are women, and on average, the women are more feminine than men. Do you see? Yeah. so it would, but look like, some,
2: it would look like two curves, the Jordan Peterson style, yeah.
3: Exactly, with significant amount of overlap mm-hmm. in the, uh, around the medians, right? So it is possible for women to have a spine and to have a pair, figuratively, mm-hmm. and they do exist, absolutely that's why we were talking about masculinity. Mhm.
2: And it seems like those curves are with a more abundant world that is not as you said faced with the sh- the scarcity of just life and nature. They seem to be moving closer together whereas uh you'll see more emotional expressions in men that aren't just anger and you'll see women that are earning money which or you know providing for the family in a way. And I'm not there there is a contingent of people that thinks that that is bad, and I'm curious what your thoughts are.
3: I think a healthy human being has acknowledged and integrated his or her masculine and feminine elements, Mm -hmm. and they're probably not going to be in 50-50 balance in the vast majority of people. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with men being feminine or women being masculine, like morally. I don't think so. It does create some predictable downstream difficulties in the game of mating and dating, though, because a lot of attraction is based on sexual polarity.
2: Got it. Okay. Yeah, because I think one of the things that uh, not in this conversation, but that I find uh, frustrating is that uh, when people talk about masculinity, there is an implied ought in there that one that a man ought to be this that a woman ought to be feminine. And what you are seem to be suggesting is that that's not the case. But you will have predictable outcomes in the heterosexual dating market if you don't. Uh, have one of these in in
3: spades (laughs) absolutely like i don't think there's any moral obligation for men to be Mm -hmm. masculine or women to be feminine that said if a man signifies femininity it's going to be harder for him to find a heterosexual partner Mm -hmm. and if a woman signals strong masculinity it's going to be harder for her to find a heterosexual partner
2: got it that's just the way it is got it got it that that i can get down for i like that um in terms of we talked a lot about men uh i don't know if you said this or if someone else but you, you mentioned men having this fear of not being enough what are women struggling with in the dating world is it being too much oh, yeah. is it uh you did, well i'll let you answer well, there's that no question. good men yeah there's the same thing just flipped
3: well it's a little bit different because the uh, women aren't getting rejected like men are so mm-hmm. they they're not as angry mm-hmm. in general um A lot of bad things can happen to women in the game of mating and dating, of course, Um, but they don't seem to be as bitter. Um, The difficulty that I think that women are experiencing is that on the one hand, they are outperforming young men, right? They are earning more. They are graduating college, high school, graduate schools at significantly higher rates. They're doing pretty well relative to men in that same age demographic and they still retain elements of hypergamy which is that they want to mate and date for gain basically they they don't want a handyman's dream they don't want a fixer-upper they want to be able to look up to a guy they want to feel um safe because he's stronger and taller. They want to feel taken care of because he has an established lifestyle and resources that could generously provide for her and any potential children. But that basically means that as women improve their station relative to men, especially in the younger cohort where most of the dating occurs, there's a smaller and smaller pool from which most women would even be willing to entertain the possibility of a relationship. Mm -hmm. And the issue with that is those men by definition are doing better than those women. So these like top 10% of men have absolutely incredible optionality and men and women's sexualities are different. It's going to be harder for a man who has incredible sexual opportunity to forego that Mm -hmm. for a committed exclusive relationship than vice versa. Mm -hmm. So... What this means is that as women do better and better relative to men, there are a smaller and smaller pool of men from which they're going to select, and a proportion, a non-significant proportion of those men have no intention of giving up their heyday right Mm -hmm. now, which means that the men that women most want things from are the least likely Likely to to give give it to to them. them. And that's a really tough sell. Women Mm -hmm. don't want to hear that, because what they hear is, well, you just want me to settle? For somebody that's... That I don't want. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, I get you. Yeah. I wouldn't want to do that either. But we're coming up against something's got to give. And I think that what's interesting is that women are still waiting for the offer. Mm -hmm. We didn't talk about this on camera yet, right? Women still waiting for the offer. This was earlier. No, I don't know if it was on camera, but go ahead. Women are still waiting for the offer, which is anything from you up to... Yeah, yeah can I buy you a drink sometime to will you marry me? And what's interesting is that pretty much every other traditionally gendered role in the game of mating and dating has been challenged in post-modernity, except this. Mm-hmm. And there's, I don't think any essential reason why a woman who was doing very, very well couldn't propose marriage to a guy and say, hey, I'll take care of you for the rest mm-hmm. of your life. But women, for whatever reason, don't want that. They don't want to make the offer. They're still waiting for the offer. They're yeah. not asking men out on dates.
2: Yeah, they don't want to take care of
3: they're not getting yeah. down on one knee yeah. and offering that life. Financial to men.
2: safety and you, know, sure. you make the home. And <laughs> it's
3: like I like I like modernity, but I also yeah. I don't want to give up some of these other yeah, things yeah, yeah. too. And and that's that's tough. And a lot of guys, I think understandably see that as a kind of double standard or hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you're doing better but you're not willing to share it and you're still waiting for us, but you're going to reject me because I have less. I'm in a double bind as a guy. Why would I even try? I'm just going to save myself the pain Mm -hmm. of an inevitable rejection.
2: Yeah, and it sounds like women, the type of things that women are attracted to, giving their independent rise relative to men in their own age range is doomed to make them unhappy most of the time except for the one girl out of many who you know does secure the monogamous relationship with that guy
3: i have a really exciting episode that i've just (laughs) recorded it hasn't been published yet Um, it's called the way it all ends Mm. where i play the chess out 20 moves and i talk about the five possible ways that the game of mating and dating can end for women, and they Mm -hmm. cover all of the possible mutually exclusive outcomes. Mm -hmm. And I assign certain, let's say, odds ratios or probabilities to each one of those outcomes. Mm. Uh, Just in brief, it's that, again, most women, like let's say that the top 80% of women are actually competing for the top 10% of men because of the hypergamous uh, tendencies that we just discussed. Um, But that also means that the intrasexual competition is astounding. Yeah. And those men are loath to give up their optionality, so there's a lot of issues there. But the dream is that um, she keeps her standards very high, she beats out the intersexual competition and secures the higher value, the high value man. That's the dream. Amazing. One outcome. Yeah. Second outcome is she lowers some of her standards in order to beat out the intersexual competition to secure the higher value man.
2: Now she's one of maybe a couple of girlfriends for that exactly. guy. Okay.
3: Well, potentially, because these high, <laughs> higher value men, they might be able to provide for you materially, but they might not offer, let's say, exclusivity. They might yeah, not yeah. offer legal marriage and things mm-hmm. like that. Whereas a lower status man might, because he needs to offer more to secure the same sexual opportunity sure. relative to the higher status intersexual competition. Mm-hmm. Then there's the women who uh, lower their stan- uh, don't lower their standards don't beat out the intersexual competition and settle for a lower value man. There's the women who lower their standards, still don't beat out the intersexual competition, Mm -hmm. and still settle for a lower value man. And then there's the women who decide they can't secure and they won't settle. And Mm -hmm. so they end up unpartnered. Mm -hmm. And there are different odds ratios with respect to all five of those outcomes.
2: And only one of those outcomes is very desirable.
3: Yeah, and I think that's about 1%.
2: Yeah, so you've it's got by
3: far the least likely outcome.
2: So you've got ninety, according to your your math, you've got ninety nine percent of women who are going to have sub. They're not. They're going to be disappointed with their life relative to their expectation and age. Yeah,
3: well, I mean, have you met people? People are disappointing. Mm-hmm. I have an episode about that. So everyone settles to some degree or another, mm-hmm. and we have to learn how to be disappointed in ways that we can live with. And it's again mm-hmm. for each person to decide for him or herself. What they're willing to be disappointed in mm. not for me or for culture or for anybody else to under to define that for somebody else but yeah, we all are disappointed by each other that's mm. part of and I disappoint other people I'm sure it's just part of being human
2: yeah gosh I'm stubborn i uh i don't I don't like stopping there when I get disappointed I go I will find a way <laughs> to to well one way associate is acceptance. with with well never no <laughs> I'm kidding but no acceptance is one way and find uh yeah, beauty in the in the quote unquote limitation and just with with what you have, but when I think of uh, being with someone who has settled for me and is not thrilled with me or it a know, lot of problems, yeah, it, I, I can't. I can't stomach that. So I don't, my, I don't think that that's a, I don't think that's happening in my life in my current relationship. But yeah, when there's there's so many ways that relationships can go wrong, and I am sure uh, I I don't want any of them. <laughs> oh, absolutely! <laughs> it's very
3: very hard to have a successful, harmonious, loving mm-hmm. relationship. It's extremely uh, valuable, right? Of those five outcomes, the one that I think is most common that will affect about fifty percent of women is outcome three which is they keep their standards high, they don't beat out the intersexual competition and settle for the lower value mm-hmm. man. What this means is that most women end up with the relationship they want, but not necessarily with the man that they would prefer. Mm-hmm. That's why Chris Rock said that the number one reason your woman is always mad at you is because you weren't her first choice. Mm. And it Got does it. create a lot of difficulties in relationships. And so,
2: yeah. And so you think that there'll be half of relationships that are like that, that, you know, when things get tough, maybe she shoots a text to an old, hey, you, you know, I, I was thinking about you. And Yeah, that's a mixed mating strategy. That's yeah.
3: long been identified by evolutionary psychiatri- uh, psychologists. Mm-hmm. Um, women can, uh, they seek out different things from different men. Mm-hmm. And this goes by many names on the internet, but they might seek out genetics from an alpha and provision and resources from a more stable beta.
2: Mm-hmm. And do you, you know, I've got to talk, you know, Chris Williamson's channel. He uh, He's talking to an evolutionary psychologist who was trying to debunk a lot of that. He was one of the guys who started- That's falling
3: out of favor, the mixed mating strategy. Yeah,
2: yeah. And so I, I don't know enough about it to, to dive into it, but I know that I was chatting with him and he said that he, he went in some of his research that he's finding that that is not, uh, that it is in fact falling out of favor and that some of the- um, views that women just want you know one seed and then some other guy like they would really 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 like that one percent that's what they're absolutely aimed at
3: (laughs) and now with social media it seems like it's tantalizing like Mm -hmm. you can see it but you can't touch it Mm -hmm. and it seems like we should be able to all get those things with the advent of technology like Mm -hmm. given the infinity of options and um the ways that we can all connect I should be able to find somebody who's like a perfect match for me. Mm-hmm. She's out there or he's out there. And it's just a matter of time before we find each other. Um, I think that is one of the opportunities of the modern age. I don't want to go back to the days where there was three women in the village and two of them were old. And I guess I'm with you for the yeah. next 70 years. I like having options, but we can get into a the illusion of infinite optionality which can also degrade the dating experience for both men and women.
2: Yeah. One thing, you know, I'm trying to like avoid this circumstance in my head. And one thing that seems to, to um, potentially break it would be if you, sure, if you line everyone up on all these spectrums, uh, height, finances, muscularity, uh, desirability and place them, of course, women are going to want numbers 98, 98, 99, and 100. They're all going to want those guys. Sure. But if uh, this is, I guess it's more romantic, but I think there's still something to it. If there is a real de- truth of compatibility where, you know, guy number 80 or guy number 65 is actually better than guy number 95 for that woman, given that they both like hiking and that they both want three kids and that they both want X, Y, and Z, mm-hmm. uh, that you can have a, a much higher percentage of happy staple relationships. than if you presume that all people want is to optimize their finances or, uh, height or whatever, absolutely.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because a lot of those things that people sort for, especially on the apps, are really superficial, both Mm -hmm. men and women, and they have little to nothing to do with any kind of predictable relationship success. And
2: so this seems like the solution right here. I just want to flag this because go, please continue.
3: And um, any relationship success. I think that a lot of these things are actually related to status and status is important in the game of mating and dating, but it's like a flex to have a boyfriend who's six, three and makes seven Mm -hmm. figures and has a washboard ab. Mm -hmm. But what does that have to do with being kind? What does that have to do with listening? What does that have to do with emotional intimacy and connection? What does that have to do with shared values? Uh, Sometimes the really beautiful men and women are completely insufferable. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they haven't developed even basic dimensions of their personality because they've, enjoyed optionality hand over fist since they've hit puberty basically so they're kind of underdeveloped imps a lot of them mm-hmm. uh, it's very difficult to have a connection with somebody who's not really there even if they look perfect on the yeah. outside and but here's the thing what I, i've said this on the channel you kind of have to have that experience yourself like as a guy you got a date to 10 yeah. and realize <laughs> that oh it's not actually all it's cracked up to be because until you do that, you're gonna think I'm full of shit. Yeah. You'll be like, oh, that sounds nice, Orion. I bet I that's a that's a bad problem to have dating a Brazilian lingerie model. And it's like, mm, yeah, be careful what you wish for.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's that's I don't know that everybody will have that experience, but that was my experience, which is some of the most uh conventionally beautiful women that I was with were not the women that I most enjoyed being with. And it was interesting to watch myself feel almost full in a way of like the high fives and the, oh my gosh, and the looks and the stares. But then v- very quickly, um, I didn't feel good about the relationship and it, the, you know, these were sometimes shorter, sometimes longer, but it was, uh, I'm glad for those experiences. And I do think, I wish that people understood at a deeper level that I, I that is not what I will be aiming at for the rest of my life. It I'm, is an I'm, ego
3: boost. Yeah. When you walk in to a room with a dime piece on your arm, and everyone's looking at you, and you know that you're with the best-looking woman at one of these events, it is a huge confidence boost. Mm-hmm. But it does cater to the ego. Yeah. And the ego is a suffocating, tiny room in which to live personally yeah. and interpersonally. So, and most of the time, you're not going to be at one of these events where you get that confidence rush. Most of the time, you're gonna be behind the scenes with this person. Mm-hmm. You might spend three hours getting ready, and you understand, um, you know, where their intentions are, things might not gel. I mean, everybody is different, but it's, it's, that's not the things that I sort for these days. I have two suggestions for both men and women about dating on my channel. For guys, it's find your ugly duckling Mm -hmm. because we have to admit that physical attractiveness is hugely important to men. But what I found, like I just said, is that sometimes when women blossom too early, they don't always cultivate other dimensions of their personality. So I like to look for women who maybe came into their own after college, maybe in their early 20s, that's where they started to kind of fluoresce into their beauty. But during that time, they had their heads down, they focused on their studies, they actually have a, an interesting personality, they have hobbies and friends, uh, and now they've, maybe they'll never be the lingerie supermodel, but they're attractive enough to generate my sexual interest. Mm-hmm. And there's enough to them inside to keep me sustainably interested because I get bored real easy, man. You know, I like to talk about all kinds of things. I'm curious about everything. I like to travel. I like to learn. I like to connect. I talk to people for a living. You know, if I can't talk to a person that I'm in a relationship with, that would be really hard. Mm -hmm. I don't care how much of a stud you are. Most of your relationship, you're going to be talking. Mm -hmm. As opposed to anything else yeah yeah for women i suggest that they find their dark horse because the issue is that too many women are just hanging out the widow at the winner's circle and trying to pick these top 10 percent guys who have already established themselves and these guys have infinite optionality and every woman needs to give that long hard talk to the woman in the mirror and say could i beat out 99 other really beautiful women for this one particular person By definition, most of them will not. That is not a good strategy because they also spend the best years of their lives from a sexual marketplace perspective chasing after men who probably will never give them what they're looking for, Mm -hmm. and that puts them behind the curve when the game changes at 30. I keep bringing up 30 because 30 is the moment at which the average man's sexual marketplace value exceeds the average woman's sexual marketplace value for the very first time. And so the game completely alters. That's why most marriages happen at 29. It's the last possible moment where a woman typically enjoys a marketplace advantage over a man. And so she's securing a a lifetime relationship at that peak, Mm -hmm. which is actually a really smart thing to do. Sometimes Mm -hmm. women get a rap for being irrational, but if you look at how they actually made in date, you couldn't say that. Like they're very rational. So let me just put a pin in this, which is to look for the dark horse. Women need to kind of be savvy investors. They need to kind of like learn how to pick them. They need to be able to exercise appropriate discernment with respect to which men are likely to go the distance. There is a risk there. But my argument is that it's a smaller risk than hanging out the winner's circle where you're most likely not going to be the one who's picked. So sometimes we've been on the wrong pony. That's okay. If you start in your early 20s, you have a few races that you can, you can take to the, to the winner's circle. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? And um, to, to, to figure out all of those successful men, they weren't always those successful men. And they probably were guys who didn't have a lot of optionality. And that's why they worked so hard to generate the success that they do. Mm. That's pretty much why guys, like you were mentioning, do anything. They sublimate their sexual drive (laughs) into achievement.
2: To making stuff happen. Yeah. Yeah. I I can't help, maybe I'm a a hopeless romantic. I don't think I am in that I I don't disagree with that. But I guess, what is my feeling? That that presumes that the axes on which people are choosing is the, you know, winner circle of financial success, handsomeness, et cetera. And for women, it's uh, beauty, which I, I don't deny are very important. I want a beautiful p- person that I'm attracted to. My experience though, is that there are deeper emotions that people are often trying to feel when they sort for finances or beauty or whatever. So if they're sorting for finances, they want to feel safe and secure and uh, taken care of. Mm-hmm. And if they're sorting for beauty, perhaps they're looking for a deep sexual connection or something like that. And those first things might be correlated but not causal to the deeper desires. Uh, that's been my experience, at least. And um, I the the framework that seems, at least the one that I want to take onward with me, is rather than looking for an ugly duckling or something like that, to just be as uh, deeply me as I can and polarize for the things that will be a fantastic match for me, uh, holding attraction as a necessary component that I need to feel, but not as a spectrum on where like 10 is better than nine is better than eight. It's like, look, if I'm, if I'm drawn to you and we've got chemistry, uh, it seems better than me trying to, uh, hold, hold that one axis in such high regard, I suppose.
3: I think a lot of what you're saying is true. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of these things that people filter for are proxies for other things that can be secured in other ways. Absolutely. Um, and Sometimes and maybe even most people can stick with that connection if they find it. Mm -hmm. I find that in the real world, it does create a liability. Like when I was thirty and I was unmarried, I thought that I was behind the curve. Now I'm forty and half the people who were married then are divorced. Yeah, so now you're you're, now I'm ahead of the curve. (laughs) The whole idea about being ahead and behind is ridiculous anyway. Everyone's on their own path, but it does feel that way sometimes Mm -hmm. to certain people. And why did those people break up yeah i mean it's hard to know what a relationship feels like from the inside but i do think that it can be difficult because people are people if over time uh, a man loses or a woman loses sexual attraction for their partner that creates a significant liability for that relationship Mm -hmm. can people stay faithful and say hey you know this dimension has fallen away but i'm going to prioritize the emotional connection Absolutely, they can. Do they often not? Yes. I also think that for better or for worse, our culture is becoming increasingly narcissistic where they prioritize the superficial dimensionalities of um, appearance and status and things like that. And generally, people need to have those narcissistic fantasies crumble. Mm -hmm. They call it narcissistic collapse. It's usually a very painful experience to the individual involved. And it usually comes through some sort of profound disappointment. And the opportunity there is that they can then build back on firmer ground on a real personality as opposed to a fabricated one, which they had to develop because it was the best possible strategy that was on hand to them in their families of origin during their childhood. Um, Narcissists are just really, really terrified children.
2: So do you subscribe to the uh, belief that a lot of these personality disorders are are childhood coping mechanisms, whether it's borderline or uh, NPD or I don't know if it's still called NPD?
3: Uh, it's still called NPD, yeah. Okay. Um, absolutely. Personality disorders almost always have their origins in childhood. I mm-hmm. don't think that you could be like a healthy, secure individual and become disordered personality wise as an adult. Mm-hmm. It's so difficult because... Personality is like the water that the fish swim in, and that's why they can be so difficult to uh, recognize in yourself, because personality believes that it is this healthy, normal standard of action in the universe. So one of the most common universal attributes of personality disorders is externalization, which is everyone else is the problem, right? I'm normal because that's how I experience myself. I don't know any different, right? Who who really has an experience of a different personality, right? Mm -hmm. Very few people. So of course you're going to normalize your own experience and it takes some time, sometimes longer than other people might wish um, before they say, oh, I'm actually the common denominator in all of these difficult or failed relationships. Maybe I do have some contribution to this Mm -hmm. issue generally some kind of real injury has to occur where their illusions of let's say omnipotence or omniscience or uh like infinite attraction beauty get shattered and because that's who they identified with that was um that's the um that's the rampart that they built around the wounded scared child within Mm -hmm. everything kind of falls down and it feels like a I mean, from folks who have gone through it, it feels like death. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is an ego death. Yeah. And underneath is is just a, a child who probably was rewarded for certain ways of relating. And it created this unintentional reinforcement schedule that just went off the rails as it was implemented year after year in early childhood experiences. Sure.
2: Well, this, this maybe takes us close to full circle here. So one of the things when I think about—not um, you, but when people talk about masculinity—is they're afraid that modern men are being made soft. And I know what they're pointing to. I know what they're pointing to, this victim mentality that sure. uh, is not healthy and is a way of acquiring power and not attention. Not healthy for
3: women either. Yeah,
2: for anyone. Yeah. They often conflate that with— what you're describing which is the collapse of a persona and the finding of the wound within which is a very emotional experience sometimes it can be you know i've gone through it on different plant medicines <laughs> and all different kinds of things like that and i found that to be uh like so good for me and so good for the people around me and better for the world and i think that there seems to be confusion for men or about masculinity about on the one hand this victim mentality that is just like this you know, please look at me, everybody, and that life is too hard. And on the other hand, this collapse of the, the persona that reveals something wounded and then deeper than that true self, whatever. So I say that, you can respond to that, but also I think this is a good uh, topic for us to begin to wrap on, which is your more spiritual beliefs. I, I hear some of that underlining your concept of almost everything that we've discussed today, so I'm curious.
3: Cool. So to talk about the victim mentality... It's a really, people should be very cautious about assuming the victim posture. People can be victimized. Mm-hmm. I think that if you're not an adult, you probably have a non-zero contribution to that victimization. But it could be like 99% mm-hmm. you were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. That can happen. Even so, it's helpful to focus on the 1% that you may have Um, contributed to the situation so that you don't get re-victimized in the future. Folks who um, don't move in the direction of self-accountability tend to repeat the victimization in different relationships and in different places over time. They haven't really learned their lesson, as it were. Um, I think that sometimes it's important to signify that victimization has occurred. It's sort of like the soccer players at the World Cup. You know, they have to make a show that they've been touched or that they've Mm. been tripped to attract attention to something that might be salient to the play of the game, right? And so I think that if we're talking about modern men's plight more generally, a lot of these guys who are being criticized for assuming a victim posture, they do have a point. Like our society is really bad at approaching the idea that men have it hard. And it's like if you go that route, in the very next breath, you also have to add, oh, but women have it hard too. And it's like we can't just focus on men's issues independent of how they might impact women's issues. And in fact, when socially we talk about improving men, one of the rationales for doing so is that it's good for women, which you did just a few you know, minutes ago. It's not, a, it's not wrong, it's not bad, but why can't men's issues be appreciated and addressed in and of themselves? Why do we have to uh, relate them to the female experience? I think that's interesting. Um, so I think that men, just like the soccer players, they might be clutching their knees and rolling around the ground to attract attention to an issue but if the whistle doesn't get blown, you have to get up and start running again. You know what I'm saying? So there is sometimes more than a grain of truth to a lot of what men are complaining about in today's day and age. But complaining doesn't really get a lot of sympathy. It can attract attention. But if play continues, we have to get up, if we can, and keep going. No one can evolve spiritually. No one can move forward in their personality development from the place of a victim Mm -hmm. it's not possible it's through radical acceptance that a person sort of takes accountability and responsibility for his or her own life and says i'm in a position to change things that's where the word responsible comes from it's like i'm able to respond to this situation i'm able to respond to my pain Because no one else can. I'm a therapist. I can't take away somebody else's pain even if I wanted to. And I don't necessarily want to. I think that can be a dangerous thing to do because pain is an excellent teacher. Mm -hmm. Um, Only the person in pain is responsible because only that person can change either internally or externally to get out of that pain. It's not something that anybody else can, can do from the outside in. So that's what I mean about taking responsibility for one's own uh, hurts, from one's own pain, or even one's own victimization. Mm-hmm. It's to put yourself in back in the seat of agency. A victim is always me. Things happen to me. They're never the agent. It's never I. And that's a disempowering place to be. Me is an object. I is a subject. Mm-hmm. So there might be a point to... People need to take a knee sometimes and stay on the ground, catch their breath, but they also need to get back up. And the way they stand back up is by saying, I. I choose to stand back up.
2: Mm. The uh, I, again, agree with all of that. Interestingly, one of the... Man, there's there's peril on both sides always. One of the things that I've discovered is that I had a very heavy leaning on I in, that co- in the codependent enmeshment style relationships. Okay. And uh, it has been not, I don't know that it's victim, but to recognize other people's contributions has allowed me to, you know, separate end relationships, that sort of thing that I was always, I could fix this. I can do this. I created mm-hmm. this. I did that. And I don't think that contradicts anything that you just said. No, uh,
3: we can call that pathological responsibility. Yes, it's an inappropriate yes. assumption of responsibility.
2: Yes. Yeah. And it was because I uh, had a very immature understanding. It's like, well, if I take responsibility, it's, it's a control mechanism. <laughs> I control everything. And there is, has to be some acceptance of uh, there's a whole world outside of me. There's, there's independent people. I do not control everything. And when they react a certain way, I have to investigate, you know, might I have caused this, triggered this in some way, but, uh, there is a limit to my ability to, uh, take responsibility for everything on the planet.
3: Absolutely. And that inappropriate application of responsibility can come out in a number of different ways. Um, for some folks, it's the way of bartering into a relationship that they don't feel like they would be entitled to otherwise. It's like, you might not like me, but I will provide this service for you. Mm-hmm. I don't trust that just in and of myself, you would feel attracted, so I'm going to come in and like make your life better and assume responsibility and, and control where it might not be required or asked for. But it's also a almost inevitable strategy when dealing with... Mm, difficult families of origin. Children are inherently narcissistic. They can only see things from their perspective. They cannot really empathize with anyone else because perspective taking requires a cognitive flexibility that developmentally only occurs later on in life. And when, when something happens, when mommy is upset or daddy is angry, it's actually more threatening for the child to believe that that's a flaw in the parent mm-hmm given the child's dependence on the parent. It's like, if they conceptualize themselves as just an innocent object here to mommy and daddy's inappropriate behavior, they're screwed. It's, it's like, terrifying, yeah. I need these people to live and I can't trust them. So no child does that because, well, no child can do that developmentally. But instead what they say is, well, I'm the problem. I've done, I'm the bad boy. I'm the one who made mommy cry or made daddy scream. And it's a way of like assuming control over a situation that otherwise might be completely intolerable to the child. Mm-hmm. And that's actually, that could be the healthiest thing that kid could do. Mm-hmm. So the thing about dysfunction is it's mostly the word function. Yeah. So dysfunction works. That's why it's here. That's why it's still around years later. And that might have been the most functional, adaptive response to that child in that family ecosystem. The issue is that, you know, you and I, or this hypothetical child, we're no longer a boy. You know, we've grown up, we've fled the coop, but you can take the boy out of the house, but you can't always take the house out of the boy, as it were. So part of the opportunity in a therapeutic relationship is to identify these strategies, these ways of being that actually served a really helpful, important function at a certain time and place, to not vilify them, to not pass judgment on who we are as a consequence of needing those things in order to survive either physically or emotionally, and to let them go and to experiment with new ways of being that might be more appropriate to, you know, being an adult. Beautiful, beautiful.
2: And so now let's wind with this, your spiritual beliefs, um, if, you, if you're if you comfortable sharing sure. them. Uh, would love to understand what they are, because I think that might ground everything mm-hmm. that I just we got to talk about.
3: Yeah, it's... it's um, it's complicated. Let's put okay. it that way. I have been interested in spirituality from a very young age. I remember my grandmother gave me a book of saints. And when I was a boy and I wanted to be a saint when I grew up, I walked around with this big old cross and I, you know, made a show of being holy. And um, it was very silly back then, but I lived in a Buddhist monastery in China for several months. I studied, um, Qigong and Zen very in depth. I have, I went to a Jewish private school for most of my elementary and middle school education. So I still read Hebrew. I'm very familiar with the old Testament and Judaica. I, i have also been confirmed. I've, I've gone to church a lot. Okay, I, I'm so a personal you've... follower of Jesus. <laughs> I've gone down and explored shamanistic experiences in, in the Amazon rainforest and beyond. I'm interested in like a, maybe a Williams James approach to spirituality, the, Are you familiar? He wrote The Varieties of Religious Experience. And one of his primary theses was that there was a a throbbing fundamental beat that exists through all manifestations of religion or spirituality on this planet, and that's the real core of spirituality. So I'm not a big fan of dogma. I understand that it might have its time and its place because we're not always right. We need to often surrender to something greater than ourselves, to find a teacher, to find a mentor, because we don't know anything when we show up most of us right um so it is important to have the humility to surrender to a structure um but also to understand how that could be culturally bound and potentially inappropriate to the individual and restrictive mm-hmm. i think that there is a narcissism to the modern day application of spirituality which is it's like a religion of one So it's like, I'm the Pope and I'm infallible and like the way I do it is right. And I don't need to do this because I'm cherry picking the things about this that I like and the things about this that I don't. Mm -hmm. And I think that's dangerous. Um, Most religions, religion is kind of a bad word, especially in California, but most religions um, get it right in the sense that you need a community within which to practice what you preach on some level. Um, that's why in the Buddhist communities they have the Sangha. That's one of the three principles of um, spiritual development. You need to have the opportunity to actually put into practice new ways of being and new ways of relating to each other. And I think it's too easy when you have a religion of one to kind of let yourself off that hook. Mm -hmm. You can have this like satisfying internal experience that could be very valuable, that could be very profound and ineffable. But if it doesn't translate into, let's say, um, a, a more elevated way of moving through the world and dealing with others, I think it's spiritual masturbation. Mm -hmm.
2: And what have you found is that core heartbeat, and it might be tough to put into words, but I'm...
3: What I've found is that it's very important to have a felt experience with a higher power. Mm -hmm. A lot of why people are falling away from religion, among many other things, is that it seems like an antiquated system of rituals i go through it's almost superstitious i don't know why we do these things i know that we do them if we're catholics or we're jews or whatever um and i i feel a sense of guilt if i was raised in that culture if i don't do those things but i don't i don't feel i don't have that i don't have a felt connection with the divine and i do think that is possible for human beings to have and i think that's the core of all it should be the core of all religion in all spirituality. I think as soon as you get people in a certain time and place practicing a spirituality, you kind of inevitably develop a religion. A religion is just a systematized, culturally bound practice of spirituality. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of unavoidable that things begin to crystallize in certain ways. And it's important to be able to separate the things that are, let's say, more essentially spiritual from the time and the place in which that practice got crystallized.
2: Mm-hmm. And so ideally it sounds like each, whether it's religion, spiritual definition that each individual would, would have a felt personal experience. Of course. Not, and They would not be, you know, while, while you might sit in, in a church, it's not that from the pulpit down to you and you just have to cognitively believe and then enact oh. these things. You need to not need to, the whole point is, yeah. is the
3: experience. Yeah. Yeah. When you believe in things you don't understand, that's mm-hmm. superstition, right? Mm-hmm. Stevie Wonder said that. Religion should not be a cognitive thing. Theology is very interesting. I'd love, I'm really interested in theology. Um, I like to read all kinds of texts from all sorts of traditions. Um, but that's not the core of spirituality and it shouldn't be the core of religion either. Mm. You have to have that felt experience. And it's usually, uh, It's a transpersonal or transcendent experience, which is you have an experience of yourself mediated through the relationship with the divine that is just far more expansive, far more beautiful, far more real than anything that you have previously known about yourself or that was possible within the limited bandwidth of reality that you normally traffic in.
2: Mm -hmm. And then when you do that, a lot of, I mean, at least this is what I found, that some of the virtues that were practiced out of good socialization, like say, thank you, be grateful, do this nice thing for your sister, which were, um, they weren't coming from a place of, <laughs> I want to share my toy, right? or no. you know, this feels so wonderful. No kid wants like, to share his toy. Yeah, the, the, having uh, all of, the, many of those trite things, it is better to give than to receive. Uh, those those things that I'd heard as a kid and went, this is insane, I'll do it because you're making me. Sure. I have found uh, deep truth in in a lot of those things as I have felt you know, something approximating what it sounds like you're experiencing.
3: Many of those things are true. It is better to give and to receive. And that's to bring it full circle related to the game of mating and dating as well. One of the principles that I have is there's something called the balance of attraction, which is that it's not possible for two people to like each other exactly the same amount, which means that there's always going to be an attraction and balance. I call this person who likes to the person more the adorer and the person who likes to the person less the adored Culturally, we think that everyone wants to be the adored. I'm up on the throne, everyone's worshiping me or giving me the, the treats of uh, society. But almost everybody actually wants to be the adorer because the adorer is the one who gets to have the emotional experience. The adorer is the one who gets to be on tenterhooks waiting for the phone call, who gets to have the butterflies in anticipation of the date, who gets to be crestfallen when the date gets canceled and overjoyed when they show up unexpected. Most people want the emotional component to relationships, mm-hmm. and um, part of the cost of enjoying that is that they're the giver. It's hard to take. Like, it's actually a sacrifice that most people have to make in order to create the pretext for giving to be possible. Mm-hmm.
2: Do you think that it's possible to have, I mean, maybe not at every moment, but uh, two adorers in a relationship, two people who adore Well, one sure,
3: another? that's the um, old romantic comic trope where you get the lovers and they say, I love you more. No, I love you more. No, silly. I love you more. They're competing to be the bigger adorer. Mm -hmm. And you can, the, the balance of attraction shifts all the time. It shifts moment to moment through interactions. The polarity can shift. The gap can shift without the polarity changing. Generally over time, people settle into kind of habitual ways of relating to each other and they tend not to change until something happens. Um, but yes, those can fluctuate, and people can take turns, um, but it, it that has the liability of not really feeling organic or natural. Mm-hmm. So, um, I think people tend to find polarity here. I think it's hard for two adorers to be together, and even harder for two adoreds to be together. Mm-hmm. I think generally... In a relationship, there's one person who's more comfortable being the adored and one person who's more comfortable being the adorer, and that's kind of where they settle.
2: Awesome. So uh, not that people don't know this at this point, but where can they find you if they want to hear more of this stuff? We talked about a lot of the stuff that I've seen in some of your videos. Oh,
3: sure, yeah. My YouTube channel is called Psych Hacks, so you can look that up. I think I have about 600 episodes on the channel now. Uh, you can also go to my website, orionterromanpsyd.com, I won't spell it. Maybe we can put it in the the pinned description for this episode. You can get more information about uh, consultations and getting in touch with me for other things as well.
2: And you do consultations you had mentioned before.
3: I do. I love my consultations. They're an unexpected perk of my small little celebrity.
2: That's awesome. Well, if you guys enjoyed this and you want to do a consultation, here's your guy. (laughs) You can go to his website and check him out. Thank you, guys. We'll see you the next time. Peace.